0: If there's any attribute of God that has probably lost its popularity amongst those in the so-called reformed movement, but has continued to be championed by everybody else, even unbelievers, it's the love of God. Uh, Reformed people talk a lot about the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God. It seems like we talk very little about the love of God, and a lot of times when we do talk about the love of God, it's almost like we're afraid to say what the Bible teaches about the love of God. We're afraid that we might go too far or overemphasize the love of God, which is impossible. We've talked about how God is personal and relational, how God is great and perfect, and eternal, and immutable, and omnipotent, and omnipresent, and omniscient, and holy, and righteous, and true, and faithful. And all these things are true. You'll remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 says, If I do all these other things, and yet I have not love, I'm nothing. Well, if we have all of if these other attributes, and yet we left out the love of God... We have nothing. We have no God. If we emphasize the sovereignty of God, especially in election and predestination, all of those things, and yet we leave out the love of God, we don't have the God of the Bible. Now this is another one of those attributes that I wish that there was a way or a manner of speech that I could use to force feed the fullness and the meaning of it into hearts and minds, but I can't do that. There's no way that any man can do that. We are subject to the Holy Spirit working through the Scriptures to actually make clear just how amazing the love of God is. But I hope that you'll you'll take this into consideration, and even like this morning, if nothing else, this would stir up your your appetites to maybe try to find a book or a sermon or an article just on the love of God and understand that in studying the love of God, that's not something that you have to run off into secret and study and hope that your Calvinistic friends don't find out you're, you're reading about it. It would, be, it would be wonderful if one of us just became an expert in, only in the love of God. And that every time somebody spoke with you or we spoke of you, we would say, yeah, they, that all they ever talk about is the love of God. Maybe even a little imbalance or off-balance. Well, the rest of us are here to balance you out. But if you want to make that your area of expertise, feel free. Chapter 26 is entitled, God is Love. So let me pray and then I'll, I'll begin reading the opening paragraph. Father, would you please teach us about your love? We ask that you would wipe away our wrong thinking and replace it with right thinking. That we would maybe even be overwhelmed by your love. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. Love is a divine attribute. Let me read this paragraph. What is the love of God? It is that divine attribute that moves him to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their benefit or good. The scriptures teach us that divine love, that is God's love, is much more than an attitude, an emotion, or a work. It is an attribute of God, a part of his very being or nature. God indeed loves but He also is love. He is the very essence of what true love is. And all true love flows from Him as its ultimate source. Now we see there at the beginning of that paragraph, this phrase moves Him, and we might get a little nervous. Those who, according to our confession, confess what is known as the doctrine of the impassibility of God, and historically, people have used phrases like the unmoved mover. But just before that, we see that it is a divine attribute that moves him. In other words, what is, what is moving God to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their benefit and good? It's God. It's who God is that moves God. And if it's God who's moving God, then we can still confess He's impassable, immovable. He's not, he's not affected by anything outside of himself or changed at all. And we also see that all true love flows from him. Love is in the category of what we call the communicable attributes, which means that something of the love of God can actually be communicated to creatures like us, and then in a in in some sense, even in a creaturely way, can be. Uh, reciprocated back to Him and even turned out of ourselves and to others. The love of God is communicable. Love, even in God, fits into the category which we refer to as affections. This is similar to the word that we use, emotions, but it's different. But love is an affection or fits into that category. And as others have pointed out historically... Because God is pure, because God is simple, because He is impassible, that which we refer to as affections in God are not like they are in us. So we would say love is, is an affection or an attribute of the affections, but we cannot then begin to assume that it's like an affection in us. Love is one of those affections or attributes in God that does have a correlation in us who are made in his image and yet in God it is very different at the very least this affection of God God's love is free of anything that is carnal or sensual or even the the slightest hint of an imperfection the 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 most pure beautiful perfect love that any of us could ever exhibit out of ourselves contains some impurity. With God, it is not so. God's love is perfectly free of anything that is creaturely. So God's love, it is something totally other than us. It is a holy love. It is beyond what we experience. And yet, at the same time, it's not completely foreign to us because it's communicable. We can know something of it and, and even... Have this love born in us for others. The love of God is the very nature of God, and that's what he, where he goes to at his very first point. So we'll start by beginning, or start with, by uh, reading 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Is the first verse that's referenced. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete and comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So we see here that God is called the God of love. Notice it does not say the God who loves as if there are times when He loves and times when He doesn't love. Rather, He is simply the God of love. It is an essential trait of who He is, an essential quality, that when we say the God of love, we know we're speaking of Yahweh, the God of Scripture. And again, apart from this love, there is no God of the Bible. If we we learn all of the other attributes, but yet we fail to understand the love of God, we've not fully understood the living God. He adds in the note that the truth communicated in this statement is that love is an attribute of God or an aspect of His very nature. God could no more cease to be love than He could cease to be righteous. Even in the midst of His righteous judgment, He continues to be the God of love. All of His works, even His judgment, are manifestations of His love. Finally, because God is love, He is the standard of by which all other claims of love are judged. Now using that definition that was given above about this being an attribute of God and it's, it's an attribute that moves him to freely and selflessly give himself, we could say that the love of God is simply God freely and selflessly giving himself to others for their benefit, for their good. Now just think about that. God... Giving Himself, God giving God to creatures for our benefit, for our good. God being Himself to us for our good, for our benefit. Herman Boving says, God's goodness revealed in self-communication is called love. While we do distinguish between that which is in God and that which is a true affection in us, with all of our weaknesses, we have to be careful that we don't go to the extreme and begin to imagine that the love of God is something that is cold or clinical or lifeless. Now that is often the assumption. God is impassable. He's not affected. He has no passions. He can't be stirred. He can't be provoked from the outside. And therefore, His love is a cold, lifeless, clinical Data input, data output, love. It's the opposite. Let me explain why we typically fall into this error. This is the way we think. We often equate, that is we we pretend that these two things are the same, emotion with the outward manifestation of emotion. We we make those things the same in our minds. So, we think someone who is not showing their emotions, we would say they're not a very, a very emotional person. Someone who does show their emotions outwardly, we say that's an emotional person. Was well, we equate the two? Well, the reality is every human being is emotional. Some people have the ability to restrain their emotions, and other people do not have the ability to restrain. But everybody has emotions, but we typically equate these things, the outward show, with the inward reality. So we see someone who appears calm and collected and generally unmoved, and we just assume they must be cold. They must be a lifeless, passionless stoic. Nothing ever gets to them. We assume that there's a glitch in their personality. That's just not normal, that they don't erupt and explode. That's not normal. Everybody does that from time to time and that's simply not true. It's not true and it's not biblical for that matter. But we typically equate the show, the outward show, with the the reality or even life itself. And this problem gets really bad when we read that unbiblical perspective back into God and we begin to assume that since God is not constantly on the verge of, of either swelling up with intense, burning, impassioned love or falling down into the depths of despair because there is no love, we think, well, then His love must be lifeless and cold. That's not true. Again, we often equate the idea of life or vitality with our experience of it. What we know of life is something that is in constant change or consistent growth, always under the ever-changing impulses of, of external factors. We look at a plant and we say it's alive because it's growing, because it's changing, therefore life. But God is not the same as we are. God is life and God is immutable. He never changes and yet He is still life itself. So we can't Put those things together as if they must be true. God's life is immutable. And so God's love is immutable. God's love never increases. God's love never decreases. God's love does not swell with passion and then plummet to despair. But that doesn't mean God's love is lifeless or cold It's the exact opposite. Our experience is not to be read back into God. God's love is unable of experiencing increase. In other words, God cannot love any more than He loves. It's not possible for there to be an increase. But at the same time, He cannot love less than He has loved. Even from eternity, it can't diminish God's love is the supreme illustration of life or vitality. Always in the climax, always at the apex, always at the supreme, never diminishing, never changing. There is literally no love like God's love. And there's no love that is more full of life and action and intention and accomplishment than God's love. Why is that important? Because we often... We cannot match our, our love with our words and our actions. You know, sometimes, men, we try to say things and do things for our wives to express our love, but we know, maybe you even say this, look, there's nothing that I could say or give you or do to actually convey how much I love you. I, I can't do it. We say that with our children. There's no way you could know how much I love you. I can't put it into words. We can't match our love with our actions with God His love is always perfectly accompanied with omnipotent, effectual action. It's perfect love, eternal, unchangeable, immutable love. Our love can wax and wane and even grow cold. As as Christ Himself said, the love of many will grow cold. Our love can go way up and then go way back down. With God it is not so. God's love cannot wax, it cannot wane, it cannot grow cold. Our love often gets tired. I'm, I'm, I'm putting all of this out, but I'm not getting anything in return. Our love often gets offended when it's poured out over days or weeks and months and years, and there's no reciprocation. I'm getting nothing back, and we get exhausted. I'm just, I'm just tired of pouring out so much and not receiving anything. God's love is not that way. God's love never tires. God's love is never exhausted. God's love is never stunted or halted or hindered in any way. Perfect, immutable, omnipotent, infinite love. There's no love like God's love. And so, rather than set up our ever-changing passion's and affections as the standard, and then assuming that since God doesn't love like us, then it must not be the real thing, we ought to see that what we typically think is so good about creaturely love is actually everything that's wrong with it. Let me explain what that means. We typically think true love, the real thing, is that kind of love that just sparks in a man the the creative ability to write the perfect love song it swelled up and all he could do was write it down and we listen to a love song and we say wow that's true love right there or it might be the opposite we hear Uh, Maybe read a, a poem or hear a song about a man in the depths of despair or a woman in the depths of despair because her love has been lost. And we say, oh, that must be true love. That must have been the real thing, right? Romeo and Juliet. One dies, the other kills themselves because they were just so in love. Oh, that's real love. That's what we typically think. We think that love is full of life because it is sparked by a glance of the eyes or a particular word. I saw them and I was just melted. That must be the real thing. Do you notice that we typically associate love with all of the the faults of creaturely change? We think it's real love because it came out of nowhere or it left out of nowhere. That's not true love. We think true and, and the best kind of love must have ups and downs, highs and lows. You must be able to fall in and fall out of it without these, we think, well, it must not be the real thing. But that's not true. It's the opposite with God. Eternal, immutable, omnipotent, sovereign, effectual love is the only true standard of love. God's love is the perfect love. And though it is a communicable attribute of His, and, and even we who bear His image and, and are filled with His Spirit can often exhibit something of the love of God our, our thinking is still very often wrong, and we equate things with a show. We, we equate the real thing with the ups and downs and the outward manifestations. God is different. Our God is the God of love, real love. Turn to First John chapter 4. 1 John 4, the, the verses that were given are verses 8 and verse 16, but I'm just going to begin at verse 7 and read through 16. Again, this is the, the NAS in, in concert with my copy of the, the workbook. 1 John 4, 7 through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. So that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. If you can read that, and not conclude that Christians ought to be the most loving people on planet earth, I would have to assume you're, you're not reading the same thing I'm reading. Now this is probably one of the more well-known passages in Scripture with regard to the love of God. Even in these days, amongst pe- people who wouldn't even profess to be Christians or, or maybe would even tend towards a more liberal uh, side of Christianity, well, everybody knows this statement, right? God is love. This is often commandeered by those who read faulty love back into God when they say, well, wait a second, doesn't your Bible say God is love? Well, what they mean is their opinion of love. They mean their idea, their false love, rather than what God is actually saying here and the rest of Scripture teaches. Very rarely is this picked up as as a statement of the ontology of God, the being of God. God is love. Maybe the next time somebody throws that into your face, they say, God is love. You say, explain that to me, please. It's just three words. Surely you know. Surely you can explain what that means. God is love. It's not a part of Him. It's who He is. God is. God's love. Not the creaturely substitute. Not the fake thing we make up. Not the thing of the movies and and, uh, Nashville and Hollywood love. No, real love. God's love. The note there says, Through the Apostle John, some of the greatest truths about God have been revealed to us. God is spirit, John 4.24. God is light, 1 John 1.5. And God is love, 1 John 4.8 and 16. It is important to recognize that the Scriptures declare God is love and not love is God. The two phrases are not interchangeable. The universe was not created and is not ruled by a sentiment, emotion, or attitude called love, but by the sovereign Lord of Scripture, who in His very nature is love. And this is exactly what we see in our own day. Very often by people who will charge us with this, well, doesn't your Bible say God is love? What they actually mean is love is God. By that, what they mean is their own sinful excuse for love which fills the hearts of wicked men. They think that idea should dictate everything. If someone feels what they call love, then that and that alone gets to call the shots. That, that so-called love is never to be questioned, is never to be doubted, is to be obeyed and defended at all cost. The laws of our land are now being dictated by this love God, which is the base lust which resides in the human nature that is simply hell-bent on self-pleasure. Whatever you do, do not offend the love God. Well, what do you mean by love? Well, I mean whatever anybody means by that term love, and however they want to express it, don't offend that idea. Well, that's they've set that up as their God. They've taken the, the Scriptures, God is love, and they've twisted it to say, love is God. And by that, I get to define love. Love is not God. God is Love. And that's what he goes on to address in this next section. Not only is God's love a divine attribute, but God's love is righteous. He says, before we advance any further in our study of the love of God, we must make sure that we're thinking biblically and are not distorting a biblical view of God's love with the erroneous presuppositions of our contemporary culture. Modern culture has redefined love as the willingness to approve or at least tolerate every opinion or behavior without judgment or censure. Any mention of an absolute standard of morality is considered narrow-minded and bigoted. Any talk of judgment or censure is seen as loveless and even hateful. Again, you do not confront the, the love God. You do not challenge the love God. At, at any point that anybody wants to pull out that little card, the love card... You must stop and halt your words and change your rules, change your ideology. And if you don't, you don't love, you hate. You're a bigot. That's the way our world is. The difference between God's love and the erroneous opinion of modern man can be summarized in one word, righteousness. Righteousness is an attribute of God, an essential aspect of His nature. Thus, He cannot cease to be righteous any more than He can cease to be love. Furthermore, He cannot ignore or lay aside His righteousness even in the name of love. There's a distinction between what the world calls love, which has no righteousness in it, and the love of God, which is perfectly commensurate with His righteousness. Now because we are by nature slaves to sin, in our our carnality, in in our nature apart from Christ, we think that love is shown by letting someone go their own way. That's love. That's the way carnal men think. We default to the thinking that anything that confronts me or urges me to change, well, that's unloving. The way that you love is by stepping aside and letting me be who I want to be and do what I want to do. That's our default. It's the exact opposite of the truth of Scripture. How do I know this? Well, everyone in this room who is a parent knows that this is not the case. We love our children. And so what do we do? We intervene into their natural tendencies and inclinations and desires because we love them. We tell them, you cannot eat only Reese's Pieces for supper. Well, that's not very nice. I'm telling you because I love you. You can't not brush your teeth. You can't just kick and scream and cry to show that you're upset. You cannot play in the road. You cannot spend your money however you please. Well, I earned it myself. I don't care who earned it. You don't get to just buy whatever you want to. Well, that just doesn't seem very nice. It's my money. Well, love compels me to say, that's a stupid purchase. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be right as a parent to let you go down that road. Save your money. Love, because we love them, we say, you can't do whatever you please on the Lord's day. Well, I don't understand. Well, then you just have to take my word for it. Now, why do we do these things? Why do we intervene? Why do we jump in their path? Because we love them. We're God's servants given to them for their good. We love them. We want them to understand, at least at some point, and they will understand looking back, that their natural proclivities would have only led them to eternal destruction. Or, at best a heavenly reward, but a, a sorrow, sorrowful earthly life because their teeth are rotted out. Right? So we, we love them. We, we, we don't want hurt for you. We don't want harm. We don't want pain. And so we intervene. We show them there is a better way. Every parent knows this. Love intervenes. Love gets in the way. And this is how the Bible shows us God's love. Notice what he says. God is perfect in all His ways and all His attributes exist together in perfect harmony without contradiction or confusion. Therefore, God's love must always be a righteous love. This is the great reason for which Christ died. In Christ, God does not tolerate man's rebellion, but He confronts it and makes a way for sinful man to be reconciled to Him. He tells us that we are wrong and warns us of oncoming judgment. But He also provides a way for us to be forgiven and set right. Through the death of His Son, God satisfied the demands of His justice against sinful man. And now He can fully and freely manifest His love toward those who trust Him. Notice that. These things that that our world will tell us is not love. He confronts our rebellion. He tells us that we are wrong. God does that. Parents, you you know that. You have to tell your kids. You're wrong. We do that because we love them. God does that because He loves us. He gives us this summary of how these attributes of love and righteousness work together. First, God is love. And His love is manifested in His benevolence toward His creation, even toward sinful man. Now, if you feel more comfortable describing God's disposition toward sinful men... Using terms like mercy or benevolence, and you would rather preserve the word or reserve the word love for uh, the, those who are in covenant with him, the saints that that's fine. The point remains whatever you want to call it, the reality is that in everything that has been created, God has revealed himself to sinful creatures who hate him. Just call it what you want to call it. God all of creation screams and reveals a creator to men who do not want their creator. Men can't fault God for their unwillingness to come to Him. It's not as if God done something wrong or He didn't try hard enough. His love is manifested in His benevolence toward His creation. Secondly, God is righteous. And His righteousness is manifested in the reward of the righteous and the judgment of the unrighteous. So, Because He's righteous, He's constrained by His own character to render proper judgments to every creature, every man. Now the sad reality is all men have sinned. We're all sinners. All men are subject to the judgment of God resulting in eternal condemnation. That's our condition. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. He who does not believe is condemned already. That's, it. That's us by nature. God's righteous. He has to render a righteous judgment. But what happens? God intervenes in our case. God's love and righteousness are cooperatively manifested in the cross of Calvary. The Son of God became a man, bore the sins of men, and suffered the righteous wrath of God that was due to them. By His death, he satisfied the demands of God's righteousness so that God might freely and fully manifest His love toward those who trust in Him. That's God's intervention. That's the love of God stepping in the way. As we read earlier, and if you still have it there, First John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The absorber of wrath. That's love. God intervened. God jumped in. God imposed Himself upon us in our situation. While we were still sinners, Christ suffered as a propitiation for our sins. And to go back to the illustration, while we were playing in oncoming traffic, eating chocolate for breakfast, and kicking and screaming anytime we didn't get our way, full of sin and self-destruction, set in God's perfect justice to be instruments of His eternal fury, God sent His own Son to take the judgment upon Himself. That's love. Not that God left us in our way. Not that God stayed at an arm's reach and said, well, I, I don't want to get in your way. I want to let you make your own decisions if this is what you really feel like you should do. No. He intervened. He, he stopped us in our tracks. That's love. God's love, he says, is then manifested in that all who repent and trust in Christ are justified before Him and granted unbroken fellowship with Him, union with Christ. The righteousness of God is further manifested in that all who refuse the gospel will be judged with perfect equity and impartiality for every thought, word, and deed. In a room this size, it is likely that somebody in this room will at some point be judged with perfect equity and impartiality for every thought, word, and deed, and you will for eternity reap the fury of God in your body and soul for those sins. It's not, that's not God's fault. God loved. God intervened. Even right now, God puts you in a place where you can hear what God has done. And He'll say, you heard it. You rejected it. You turned away. God's love is then manifested. Did I just read that? Yeah. The point that He's making is that in no way does God's righteousness hinder His love. At the same time, in no way does His love hinder the execution of justice that's the point he's making turn turn to Exodus 34 now we see this these two what seem like extremes laid out before us Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 he says this is, One of the most important self-descriptions of God in all the scriptures. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now I'll walk through these words that he unpacks for us. Terms that describe God and his disposition towards sinful men. All men are sinful. This is how God describes himself. First, compassionate. God is compassionate. The word is translated from the Hebrew word rakum, which denotes one who is compassionate or merciful, especially to the needy, weak, or sinful. It is used in Psalm 103:13 to describe the relationship between a father and his needy child. Quote, just as a father has compassion on his child or his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's compassionate. He's gracious. The word is translated from the Hebrew word kanun, which denotes one who shows mercy or pity to one who is in need. It is often used of a superior condescending to the needs of an inferior who has no right to make any demand. It could also be used of a creditor who has pity or mercy on a debtor who cannot pay. Of course, we think of the story of the the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a debt. Gracious. It also says that God is slow to anger. This phrase may also be translated patient or long suffering. The word anger comes from the Hebrew word af, which literally refers to a nose or nostril. The picture communicated is that of the flaring of the nostrils, which denotes anger or wrath. The idea is not that God can tolerate sin for a long time or that it takes a a great amount of sin before God becomes angry. For the scriptures declare that God is a God who is, has indignation every day. Psalm seven eleven. Rather, the idea is that God's love and mercy restrain His wrath against sinful man, giving sinners ample opportunity to repent before judgment finally falls. The New Testament equivalent to this would be He uh, is patient and His patience is so that others can be saved. Others can be uh, converted. His patience is to be seen as, as the opportunity to be saved. He's long-suffering. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. The word loving kindness comes from the Hebrew word chesed, or, we, or a, a form of the word chesed, which we hear many times. It's most commonly translated mercy, kindness, or loving kindness. It can also be translated as steadfast love or loyal love. The word truth is translated from the Hebrew word emet, which also denotes firmness or faithfulness. This is God. This is the God of Scripture. Now, verse 7 gives us one of the implications of God's love. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So how do we see God's love? Well, in His love, He forgives iniquity, Transgression and sin. The word forgive comes from the Hebrew word nasa, which literally means to lift, carry, or take. So the Lord is the God who takes away our sin. Three distinct terms are used to describe sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Although each word has a distinct meaning, the main idea being communicated is that God forgives all types of sins. Sin. Of every kind. You, do, you can't commit a kind of sin that God does not forgive. All types and kinds of sin, that truth should bring great comfort to the sinner. And how has God forgiven or taken away our sin? He, he hasn't just overlooked our sins, He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug, He doesn't just put them in a place where they'll be forgotten, but rather He took them off of us, laid them on His Son. And then punished his son. Because he's done that. We can be forgiven. Our sins are taken away from us. Because our sins have already received their due punishment. We can be actively forgiven. By all of our sins. Past, present and future. Because the penalty has already been paid. They've already been punished. This is God's love. God didn't have to do this for a single sinner. He's done it for a multitude of sinners. Why? Why? Love. We also see in these verses how God will respond to those who are deemed guilty. Verse 7, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So so God forgives and He punishes the guilty. See the problem? How, How can that be? Well, He explains in the note. Here we see what seems to be a great contradiction. God loves and forgives sinful men and yet He warns that no sinner will go unpunished. How can these two seemingly contradictory statements be reconciled? The answer is found in Jesus Christ. In His righteousness, God does punish every sinner for every sin. Yet in love... God sent His only Son as a substitute to bear the sins of His people and suffer the punishment that was due them. In the death of Jesus Christ, God demonstrates both His justice and His love. Those who believe the gospel are freely pardoned because their sins have already been punished through the suffering and death of Christ on Calvary. Those who refuse to believe remain fully responsible for their sin and will be judged before the throne of God. Now, we might wonder, how can it possibly be called justice for one person to be punished for the sins of another? We would say, well, that, might, that sounds like a good idea. That's a nice thing. Is that really justice? How can that possibly be? Well, the answer is found in what we saw this morning in the doctrine of our union with Christ. When he died, we died. We were chosen in Him from eternity. He took flesh and blood in union with the children that God had given Him so that when He was crucified, we were with Him. When He died, we were with Him. The old writers would say Christ was a public person. He was not acting for Himself. He was acting in the place of others, in in spiritual union with them. And this is what God has done in love for us. Maybe even some would... I think a good argument could be made that this is actually a greater illustration or a, a greater and more clear manifestation of justice than the the alternative. Because think about it, those who do not come to Christ, they will suffer the punishment for their sins for all of eternity. There, there will be no end. No place where, where God will say, And now justice has finally been satisfied, you may enter into heaven. No, for all of eternity, it will will require eternity for justice to be continually, or, or, or wrath to be continually poured out. Whereas in the cross of Christ, in a few short hours, that amount of eternal fury is swallowed up and justice is perfectly satisfied in an instant. Where God could actually say in raising Christ from the dead, I'm satisfied. It's not a a lack of justice. It's not setting aside justice. It's an even greater display of God's justice. Why? Love. He did this because He loved sinners. So how might we summarize the biblical truth that God's love is a righteous love? Well, rather than needing to counteract or displace one another, God's love actually served His righteous character. Righteousness said, I need a victim. Love said, here's the victim in Christ, the sacrifice. And His righteousness became the very vehicle by which His love would be manifested to the world. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Righteousness is displayed, and love is displayed. Righteousness or justice demanded a sacrifice, and so Love provided the sacrifice. Love, by providing the sacrifice in Christ, meets righteousness or justice on his own terms. There's no contradiction. It's it's perfect harmony. God's love and God's righteousness is a righteous love. Based on what we've learned in this chapter, how would we summarize these two statements? How can they be reconciled? Number one, God forgives all types and kinds of sins. Two, God will by no means allow the sinner to go unpunished. Of course, we know the answer is Jesus Christ. The Son of God incarnate as a man. Jesus Christ, the righteous, takes the place of the sinner. Our sins are imputed to Him. And He's punished. Truly, he was truly punished with the punitive vengeance of God on the cross for our sins. Real sins. Since that's taken place, there's no more judgment to be executed. Justice is satisfied, the requirements have been met, and therefore God, having already taken the burden of sin onto Himself and His Son, can allow the sinner to go free. Another passage that we know well, or I hope you know well, 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous, or faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the fact that God is faithful to forgive sins, that's an amazing thing. That's a wonderful truth. Every sin. Every time you go back, God doesn't say, Oh, another one? No, it's forgiven. 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 Every sin. He's faithful to do that. That's good news. But God is also just to forgive sins. He's faithful and just. It's not that He's faithful And he's also really kind, and so he says, you know what, I'm having a good day. I'll forgive that sin too. No, his justice requires at this point that he forgive the sins of his elect because their punishment has already been taken away from them. It's something he does out of perfect justice because our advocate... Jesus Christ the righteous has already given an adequate answer to God for all of our sins in His own death. He's just to forgive sins. If you go to God through Christ with a single sin or a multitude of sins seeking forgiveness, God's own justice requires that He absolve them in an instant. He is required to do that by His own standards. Now where where does this come from? It comes from His love. Let me close with this quote from Octavius Winslow. If one perfection of God shines brighter in redemption than any other, it is this. Love is the focus of all the rest. The golden thread that draws and binds them all together in holy and beautiful cohesion. Love was the moving, controlling attribute in God's expedient of saving sinners. Justice may have demanded it. Holiness may have required it. Wisdom may have planned it and power may have executed it. But love originated the whole and was the moving cause in the heart of God. The salvation of the sinner is not so much a manifestation of the justice, holiness, wisdom, or power of God as it is a display of His love. Now, I don't think that we have to get into a a bidding war and try to put God's attributes against one another or try to see which one is the greatest of them because in God, they are simply God Himself. But at the very least... We ought to be the greatest champions of the doctrine of the love of God. May it be true that people heard out of our mouths doc- the doctrine of the love of God long before we got to the doctrine of election or the eternal decree and things like that. Again, that doesn't mean in our evangelism we start off with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can point out to people what they already know. They're sinners. Hey, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're sinners, right? Right? Did you know that God loved sinners so much? They put his own son on the cross and poured out his judgment upon his son so that we could be saved. Isn't that an amazing thing? God is a loving God. We ought to champion God's love. Let's pray.